Welcome to Defining Rules, a podcast about jobs you may have never heard of. I'm your host, Kate Barrett. Let's explore the possibilities of what's out there so that we can find our perfect role. Hello, hello. I am so glad that you guys are tuning in for another episode of Defining Roles. This week, I am doing something a little bit different, not that different, but a little different, and that I'm interviewing someone that has a job that you're probably familiar with, but looking at the ins and outs of what is actually involved in that job. So I have several friends who are looking to make very big career changes, and I've heard more than once people mention medical device sales as something they're interested in transitioning into for many reasons, whether it's transferring you know, sales experience and making good money, industries that are currently doing well. So I reached out to Ryan, who is currently a medical device sales rep, to see what his ins and outs of the job actually are. So I'm very thankful that Ryan was open and honest about the industry and what his experience is in this episode. Just a heads up too, we did have a little bit of audio technical issues that came up in the intro, but I promise that it is only the first few minutes you'll kind of notice when it changed. So hang tight, it will resolve itself. One more thing before we jump into the episode. I would love to have some suggestions or feedback on roles and careers and jobs that you would be interested in learning about. I have had so many wonderful suggestions and kind of branched out of my network, but I'd love to hear if there's something that you're particularly interested in, especially if you're about to make a career change or if you just happen to know anybody that has a really cool job and you'd like to find out more about what they do, I'd love that suggestion too. So send me an email at definingrolespodcast at gmail.com. That will also be linked below in the show notes if you aren't able to write it down right now. Okay, now let's get into the interview. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Let's start with what is your official job title? So um, I'm a territory manager for one of the neuromodulation companies in uh, the space. Awesome. Would you summarize for those that aren't in the medical field what neuromodulation means? Yeah, so neuromodulation is is, uh, any uh, modulating of the um, pathways to the brain. So it can either be applied to um, the brain or it can be applied to the central nervous system. So essentially what we're trying to do is either affect pain signals that are being sent from um, peripheral nerves uh, before they reach the brain or... There's also something called deep brain stimulation, where we can treat the effects of essential tremors, clinical depression, as well as um, try and halt the effects of Alzheimer's. So um, that's not a franchise that I deal with, even though it's quite exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, We're kind of on the frontier of some really cool things happening in uh, deep brain stimulation, but I specify in pain. Um, So we do radiofrequency ablation 
We do uh, spinal cord stimulation or dorsal column stimulation. And then we also uh, offer another franchise, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of my company, which is basically a separator um, of spinous processes. And so mm-hmm. when, when patients are suffering from um, clinical stenosis, that gets bad enough to where it's not operable, um, but they need a clinical option because the pain is getting bad. So central canal stenosis, uh, they offer a, um, a separation device that uh, kind of allows for a little bit more space uh, in the epidural space to um, try and negate the nerve impingement. Okay. Yeah. So these are implants and non-implant devices, Yeah. correct? And they just communicate or they modify some of the communication with the brain to then control pain. Is that kind of a layman's description? That is perfect. You hit the nail on the head. Awesome. Cool. How would you define your role? So I am a, so I'll take you back a little bit. I started out as a clinical specialist and pretty much anybody who gets hired in the neuromodulation team um, of our, our, our company starts out most of the time as a clinical specialist. And I think that um, we do that on purpose. Our main goal is to take care of patients in the continuum of pain, right? So when I first started doing this, even though I'm a territory manager now, which is officially considered to be one step above a um, clinical specialist, I don't view it that way. Mm -hmm. But um, my progression was clinical specialist to territory manager. And starting out as a clinical specialist, it kind of takes the business aspect of what we do out of it and allows for new incoming recruits to really focus on um, the intricacies of our device, learn the device, and then also how the pain continuum works and what we're trying to treat. We are a part of a patient's, um, I guess, journey from the moment they're chosen as a spinal cord stimulator candidate to indefinitely once they have our device. And so there's a lot of time and effort that goes into educating patients, trying to get authorizations through um, insurance companies, working with physician offices to identify the right candidates for our device, and then working them through the continuum to allow them to get a therapy that can be very beneficial for them. So um, then you take and you stack on the business aspect of what we do. And that's where my role comes in, which is territory manager. Um, We are working with hospitals, um, ambulatory surgery centers, and also physician offices to help with authorizations, coding, billing questions, as well as a whole litany of other things to try and help with um, reimbursement to make sure that, you know, if a a physician is, you know, performing this and a hospital is performing this, um, they're getting paid appropriately for what they do. Okay. I didn't realize that you actually had a relationship or involvement with the actual patients that receive this device. So it's not just with physicians that you are working with. Oh, yeah. We work integrally with, uh, with patients as well. I'd say that, um, you know, we work with probably in my area, I'd say we work with about 30 to 40 different doctors and we've got, you know, I mean, countless patients that we, uh, have treated or are currently treating now. So, um, I mean, every patient that goes home with one of our devices, either trial or implant, um, which I can explain in further detail if you'd like to go into it, uh, has yeah. my personal cell phone. So, Are your devices pretty specific and unique or do you have to distinguish yourself in the market? We definitely have to distinguish ourselves. I would say that um, our company, the, the, the devices used to be very unique. 
When I first started doing this about seven years ago, the devices were extremely unique. We had a platform that none of the other companies in the market had. There were only three companies in the market at that point. So, um, and I'll, I'll spare you on the details, but they were very unique. There's some definite, you know, uh, very big differentiating things about our products that um, I would say physicians chose us for our programming ability and our ability to hit places that, um, you know, patients needed, specifically in the lower back, that um, some of the other companies just didn't do a very good job of. So it's a much more, if you think about it, we're trying to stimulate the afferent pathways to the brain. And if my best analogy that I've found for it is um, if you were to grab a handful of somebody's ponytail and try and sort through each one of those individual hairs, that's what your spinal cord looks like. Hmm. So trying to, you know, segment hairs out and leave other ones in in your stimulation field can get extremely complicated. And it's important for the patient because if we're not stimulating in the right area, it could be that they're not getting the therapy that they, that they need. So the, mm-hmm. the device is almost rendered useless, let's say, if we're stimulating only in their legs and they need it in their back. Mm. So our ability to move in the space was much more finite and much more intricate than the other devices in the market. But everybody kind of learned from our platform and has um, come more to what we do, even though no, still nobody can do it. They're, they've come to more of what we do instead of, um, you know, the, the big polarization in the space. So and it used to be that there was only tingling sensation that was overlapping the pain signals for the patient's therapy. Right. So. Um, the essence of spinal cord stimulation when it first started out is trying to introduce what we call paresthesia into the areas of the patient's chronic pain. So let's say lower back and radiculopathy in the legs, right? Um, if we were to be able to get that, it could be really great. But over time, um, there's something in our space called habituation and doing the same exact thing to a set of nerves over the course of one, you know, two, three, five, ten, 10, you know, 15 years Mm-hmm. Um, can lead to what we call habituation. And it's the patient's um, therapy kind of waning over time because we're not doing different things to it. Okay. Right. So um, enter now. And it definitely seems like we've got much more in our tool belt to be able to treat a patient's pain from high frequency programming and burst programming, neither of which need to be felt by the patient. So we can essentially mess with the wave to be able to stimulate the patient's painful areas, but do so in a way that they don't have to feel the tingling sensation as well. Hmm. So we've all kind of come together. There's now, I think, five different spinal cord stimulator companies in the market, um, and recently six. One of them, uh, unfortunately, went bankrupt. Hmm. But, um, you know, there's a, there's, this is a hot space right now. Pain is okay. a, a big deal. And yeah. so um, a lot of the devices that you see have kind of come more towards the middle where anything that you choose will most likely have a couple of different therapy options for the patient for them to be able to utilize a couple of different types of programs. Okay. So there's still some definite differentiation in the market, but I think a lot of the differentiation comes from the rep as well. How much of an asset can you be Mm -hmm. to your team members and the physician offices that you work with 
to be able to, instead of, you know, getting nitty gritty on what kind of waveform you're using or, you know, um, whether or not somebody can move in 1% increments or whatever the deal is, right? Because there's always something hot to talk about. Um, it's more so about trying to figure out ways to help your clinic in um, outside of just what you do, right? And that kind of makes you indispensable, which will, I mean, you've got a couple of really good questions in there that, uh, that you had sent over to me. So I think that um, I'll go over that in a little bit more detail um, as cool. we progress. So how does the relationship look between physician and sales rep? I, what, since it's finding the right candidates, but just walk me through typically how those relationships work. Yeah. Um, we're an expert in our device and they are experts in their patient population. Mm-hmm. So trying to converge in a way that doesn't feel salesy is, has always been my approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that sales reps get a really bad rap. And I think that a lot of this has to do with, you know, the, the picture that you see in the back of your mind, whenever you see a salesman, it's like the greasy, <laughs> the greasy yeah. guy on this, on the car lot. Right. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, honestly, I don't view it that way. I, I, I once read a book that everybody is selling. Right. Mm -hmm. And everybody in some way, shape or form is trying to push their own agenda. And what we're trying to do is help patients and also help physicians in the space. So the relationship between sales rep and physician, I think, should be a really strong one. If a physician can pick up the phone and call me to discuss certain things about a patient's therapy, um, I know that I'm doing my job. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not just that he's calling me to say, hey, what's what what differentiates you from the field? It's, hey, you know, I've got a good candidate for for what I think is, um, you know, a good candidate for your device. Um, Let me discuss this with you. Is this, you know, something that you think we should try out or um, and, and you become more of an asset. So the sales rep that I see doing really well in our space are the guys or and gals who can um, figure out a way to make it less salesy and make it more, um, I don't know what the word for it would be, but um, I guess m- more of an asset to their team. Somebody that you can call um, pretty much any time to figure out um, a, a patient problem. Okay. Your job is to be the expert on the device. So anything mm-hmm. that the doctor has questions on, and even if it's not a good fit, it's your job to bring it up for him to consider as well. It is. Yeah. And there are things that I don't think about. And there are things that, uh, you know, the physicians that we work with aren't going to think about. And so it's our job to kind of start the dialogue and try and come up with the best course of action for um, any number of things with regards to our device. So how do you go about creating new businesses just through the relationships with the physicians that then have the clients? Or is there anything outside of those worlds or of, of those uh, relationships that you would do to then kind of expand your reach? Yeah. You know, um, I would say that a, a good 80% of it is relationship based. Mm-hmm. My philosophy has always been stay present in the clinics around town so that even if you aren't coming out on the top and they aren't choosing your devices, number one, you could be selected as number two or three based off of your access to the account and um, making sure that they still know that you're available for them, right? Mm -hmm. When sales reps start to get real pushy, um, it tends to put anybody off. Right. So 
um, my ability to access these accounts after I've developed my relationships, I can pretty much walk into any number of my accounts and walk right through the front door, right? Mm -hmm. But we've kind of, and this is one of the reasons why I absolutely love my company is we always rely on physicians and physician offices to feed us our business. And one of the things that we're noticing in spinal cord stimulation and really medicine in general is patients are trying to take a hold of their own therapies, right? Whether it be a cardiac pacemaker or, um, you know, they had a whole bunch of cobalt problems with devices that were implanted for sports med. And I think that a lot of patients are really starting to do a lot more research. And because of social media and everything that's out there for uh, resources for patients, it's making their job a lot easier. You can walk into a clinic and already have done your research on a spinal cord stimulator and say, hey, this is something that I think I'd be a great candidate for. Let's talk about it. And maybe could I get hooked up with you know, an ambassador or something like that so that um, I can discuss this therapy further. So that kind of seemed insidious to me when we first started reaching out to patients like, hey, we're kind of mm-hmm. skipping the doctor and going direct to patients, but other companies in the market were doing it and having a lot of success with it. And so I think my company has kind of died, you know, dove in headfirst to try and get direct access to patients that are otherwise untreated. And we've done that in a number of ways through Facebook. We've done it through Instagram ads. We've done it through um, what we call therapy awareness events in, in communities. So instead of just relying on physicians to identify candidates, which is a really unreliable source of trying to get your patients um, for a number of different reasons, and and we can go into further detail if you'd like, but relying on your physician to identify a good candidate when they're seeing 30 patients a day and also educate that patient in their practice and then also, you know, get us the information that we need in order to contact and educate that patient further. And then have us track it through the system, make sure that they're not slipping through the cracks, get authorization and actually finally get them to the point where they can have their trial. It's a very lengthy and um, it's just not a good process, right? It's it's the process that we've always used and it it tends to work okay, but um, there's a lot that uh, goes unsaid during that Mm -hmm. process. And so I think that our ability to reach out to patients um, you know, via slow social media platforms and educate them on what they can take back to their physicians can be very empowering as well. So, mm. wow. So your company does have teams that work mm. with that, um, patient outreach and yes. awareness of the device and who, who should be kind of thinking about this device if they're experiencing these symptoms. Interesting. And what we're doing is targeting, you know, um, there's a, as you well know, I'm sure there's plenty of places where chronic pain patients go to mingle online. And what we're trying to do is run ads and do things that are productive for patients so that they know that yes, we're, we're in a chat room or a, um, you know, a place where we've got a bunch of different things that we could be talking about and looking at with regards to our chronic pain, but we're all here for the same reason. And it's because we want to get better. And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to target the people that, you know, need access to our therapy um, and try and bring them to the physician office, which is also creating value in itself because these patients wouldn't have otherwise be seen. So I've got a perfect example of this. We just recently ran a Facebook ad here in town 
for one of the local practices that we work with. And, you know, they have varying degrees of success, but this guy put on a seminar for 23 different patients, all brand new to his practice, had never been seen by a pain physician before. And especially when you put it in the context of COVID, you know, patients feeling like, um, I don't know if I want to go out in public. I don't, I'm still in chronic pain, but I don't know if I want to go to a physician office. I feel like I'm putting myself at more risk. Mm-hmm. So, you know, explaining the procedures that he's got in place to keep patients safe, explaining what our device is all about and what the interventional therapies are that they could potentially utilize. Yeah, we might only have one or two spinal cord stimulators come out of that, or maybe even none. But we're mm-hmm. still bringing a lot of value to the physician practice to say, we're bringing you you know, fresh patients that wouldn't have otherwise been treated. So So in the, in the medical world, when it comes to sales, is it mainly pharmaceuticals and devices Are those kind of the two branches? Yeah. And there's a ton of different offshoots from that, but I would say that those two take the cake for sure. Cause I think when a lot of people immediately think of, you know, med sales, it immediately goes to prescription pharmaceuticals and maybe patients that don't need to mm-hmm. be on as much as yeah. they are on. And I know we'll maybe touch on that in a little bit, but I think it's it's important to also note that some of these devices, I don't think it's fair to clump everything together. Like there are people that need the devices and I think it's doing your research and doing your homework, but then being able to find what you need is really important. So having the resources and doing the outreach, um, I just think it's worth noting the separation between all of these different, it's not the, it's not the, how many people can we scoop into this? It's who actually needs and can benefit from what we have to provide. No questions asked. And I think that if you take it back to what we were talking about just a minute ago with this Facebook event, we're not saying that those, all those 23 patients are good candidates for spinal cord stimulation. That is absolutely not the intent. It's that we're trying to bring those patients that wouldn't have otherwise got, you know, have gotten any therapy to a practice where maybe an epidural helps. Maybe, you know, maybe they're stuck with their primary care office who's trying to treat their chronic pain with increasing doses of medications Um, that, you know, if they were to get a referral from their, uh, from their primary care to get out to a, you know, somebody who actually specifies in pain management, there's a a litany of different things that that patient could potentially take advantage of that could be extremely helpful for them. Right. Right. So, um, I, I, you, you touch on something that's really close to home for me and what we are trying to treat is a failure of different things that have happened for this patient in the past. We are at the very end of the pain continuum. Mm -hmm. So by the time a patient gets to us, most of the time their relationships have been eroded. Their, um, you know, job is at stake. Um, Mm -hmm. Their overall health is at stake. Uh, Most of the time they're, I mean, a lot of times they're completely bedridden. So if the patient is thinking that the only thing that is out there for them is to continuously go back to their primary care doctor and say, you know, what's my next dose of medication? What other medication can I try? Um, How can we titrate up on medications? Because none of this stuff is meant for long-term use. Uh, What are we doing? You know? And so um, 
it leads to them eventually coming to me in much worse shape than if we had intercepted them at a much earlier stage in their in in, in their mm. um, in their life to where yeah let's say they get a bad back surgery it doesn't go as well as they would have liked but in almost immediately afterwards they get a spinal cord stimulator that can be extremely beneficial in treating that type of pain we can put them in a completely different scenario for the rest of their life rather than having them you know report back so you bring up a really good point with um, pharmaceuticals. I, we had kind of briefly touched on this when we had talked originally, but yeah. as a sales rep, the number one thing that I absolutely can't stand is when I walk into an office, I'm immediately treated as a pharmaceutical rep. And do not get me wrong. There are some fantastic pharmaceutical reps who are doing wonders in their space, mm-hmm. but the number and the sheer quantity of medications that are being consumed by particularly Americans nowadays is staggering. Mm -hmm. And it makes my job a heck of a lot harder when I would go out to a primary care office to do some education. And the only thing that they were listening to me for is the lunch, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're not interested in my therapy at all. They want to keep their patients in their practice and they don't want to do anything. And I I speak in very general terms. There's some outstanding primary care physicians in town um, and anywhere you go. Mm -hmm. They're very well versed in pain management and everything else, right? And have really good referral networks. But there are also ones that, you know, don't do their patients a service in that they're not getting their patients to the people that need, you know, uh, are there for them to help with their interventional pain. So it makes my life a a heck of a lot harder. not being able to tap into that patient population and help, you know, somebody in need. Yeah. What initially attracted you to the industry and specifically your current role? That's um, another good question. I actually (laughs) fell right into it. Um, I was waiting tables and uh, I had just graduated. I honestly kind of had no idea what I wanted to do. I came out of school with an international business and finance degree and didn't really want to go into the finance financial world. Um, yeah. so I was just kind of ho-humming along and I got tapped to be an endoscopy tech basically. Um, so Stryker has this program where they, pl- they, they sell capital equipment to um, laparoscopic equipment to large facilities. And what they do is in that sales agreement, they'll p- place a rep there that mm-hmm. is essentially like an orderly um, but is there to help with sterile processing and cleaning scopes and making sure that everything is working, you know, functionally in these cases. And so I got that role. Okay. It's a short term role. Um, you know, it, super entry level for me, it was awesome because it gave me access to the people that I really wanted. Like I thrived in, in that, right. Um, I wasn't making any money, but the benefits were great. And uh, so eventually, you know, after about a year of doing that, I started having conversations with my boss to say, hey, look, unfortunately, I love you, but you're not going to be able to keep me forever. I've got aspirations and I think that I'm going to try and move on. Um, And about a year and a half into that role, I ended up getting um, a phone call from somebody who had put my name forward uh, to to get the role with my current employer. And so I kind of just fell into the role. I had no idea what neuromodulation was. I didn't know what my company stood for. Um, I lucked out in a huge way. 
especially knowing what I know about some of the other companies in the space, there isn't a single other company that I would work for aside from, from the one that I do now. Um, mm-hmm. If I were to do anything else, I would get completely out of the space. And that speaks volumes to, to the, you know, what my company has done to not only, you know, make sure that we're well taken care of, but um, my family as well. So yeah. what attracted me to the space was when I initially got into it, our call schedule is, is pretty awesome. Um, the therapy is amazing. And my ability to grow in my, um, in my current role and on to other bigger roles mm-hmm. was um, n- never an issue. And so I think that that's really what, like, even if I stumbled into it by chance, that's really what kept me in the industry is um, there's a lot of negativity in chronic pain, Mm -hmm. but um, our ability to be able to really knock it out of the park with some patients um, is outstanding and keeps me going. And also um, the company just takes outstanding care of us. Good. What is the lifestyle as far as you know, are you going to an office? How much control do you have over your schedule? How flexible is it? Can you go into some of those details? Yeah, of course. Um, my schedule is almost entirely dependent on um, when I get phone calls and from physician offices and hospitals on when our cases and reprogrammings are scheduled. So I'll break it down um, to finite detail for you. I'd say about 10 to 15, sometimes 20% of our time is spent in the operating room, which when I tell people that it's, um, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we're doing outside of the operating room, obviously. Yeah. Um, we've got both trial and implant trials are mostly done in physician offices and take anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes. And so it's a, you know, pretty easy procedure. Implants are done in the, uh, ambulatory surgery centers or also in hospitals. And that's about an hour long procedure, hour and a half max. So all of the rest of my time is spent either, you know, recruiting patients, educating patients and doing events for patients to try and get them um, the education that they need, as well as I would say the brunt of what we do is servicing our device, uh, both during the trial and um, after the patient is implanted. The device can be completely reprogrammed and recalibrated if a patient is not having the success that they, sh- you know, had maybe during the trial or the initial part of their implant. And so we are consistently seeing patients um, at least four to five times after their initial implant and then indefinitely afterwards. So wow. a good portion of my time is spent actually meeting specifically with patients to, to um, recalibrate their device. Wow. Um did I answer your question, by the way? You did. Just, just uh, flexibility, lifestyle. Yeah. So I would say that um, it, uh, flexibility and lifestyle, our, our, our um, schedules are very contingent upon patient schedules and physician office schedules and hospital schedules and everything else. But I am very free in where I can place appointments in my schedules and when I do dinners and when I do lunches and all that kind of stuff. So um, if a day doesn't work or I have to take my daughter to a doctor's appointment or, yeah. um, my wife and I want to go out on a Friday afternoon and skip out early and, and go have a glass of wine. Um, a lot of times I can't, but a lot of times I can. And, yeah. uh, I would say that it, it, it offers quite a bit of flexibility with our scheduling. And one of the other common misconceptions about neuromodulation in particular is our call schedule. 
I told you a little bit earlier that every patient that goes home with one of our devices has my cell phone number. Um, we are doing a lot of patient outreach afterwards to make sure that the patients that we implant are doing well with our device. But at some point in time, it goes back to the patient to say, hey, if something's up, like you got to call me, right? Mm -hmm. So that I can help help with the, help with the treatment. Um, we are probably doing, before COVID, I would say that we're probably doing 30 to 40 reprogrammings a week. And um, so that takes up a lot of time, but I can also schedule those around, you know, my, my, my personal life as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've got two young kids. I can um, most of the time, almost every single day, either pick up or drop off from school. And, um, you know, rarely I'd say maybe twice a month, I do dinners with physicians and stuff like that mm -hmm. that takes away my family time afterwards. But, you know, for the most part, it's, it's, it's pretty flexible. Good. Would you talk about some of the hard versus soft skills that are invo involved in your role right now? Yeah. So basically hard skills would be technical. I imagine there is a lot of technical knowledge that you need to know. Yeah. And then soft skills, you know, the communication or things that you're just innately good at. Sure. Um, the things that I would say I'm innately good at, uh, we'll, we'll save to the end. I would say the, okay. the hard skills um, are definitely getting to know the device and the intricacies of the pain world um, as in-depth as you possibly can. Um, understanding that you're just there to help service a patient and be an asset to a physician office is a, is a big thing. I think reps tend to get too big for their britches. Um, mm. We have a lot of say, but we also didn't go to medical school and we don't get to make the integral decisions that um, a physician would. And so yeah. I think that a lot of times it's easy for us to step out of bounds. So one of the hard skills that it's taken me a little while to you know, really get to know um, has been, first of all, know your device in and out, right? Um, yeah. We go through, I want to say it's really like six months of training um, before they actually set you free into the field um, as a part of our, our company training. It's both on site as well as in the field. And it is grueling. I mean, it's, uh, I would say that it's equivalent to like two months worth of finals <laughs> in college, mm -hmm. as yeah. well as um, also, you know, doing the grunt work for your team, um, being boots on ground as well. So it's, right. it's a really rigorous training program. So that'll teach you pretty much all of the skills that you need to know about the device and um, about a bunch of other stuff, but continuing to learn about reimbursement and about coding and about billing and, um, you know, some of the other things that are super important in our job um, and also, you know, all the pre-authorization stuff and everything that we do, um, you know, just again, it continues to add up for you being an asset to any of the practices that you work with. Wow. Some of the skills that are, um, I would say, so you said that the, the integral skills, you know, your interpersonal skills are the ones that right. are the soft ones, right? That, so, yes. That's um, my definition. <laughs> <laughs> good. I'm glad we're in line. Um, yeah. My soft skills is, is uh, you know, being gregarious, being able to hold conversations with anybody, um, and also knowing, again, kind of like, you know... The, there's a lot of things that you can't do in um, this job and you can't step out of bounds and mm -hmm. <laughs> um, being aware of your surroundings is extremely important. 
not only from uh, like I could take it and specifically apply that to, you know, we're in the operating room and I need to know, in, you know, I need to be aware of my surroundings when it comes to the sterile field. Yeah. But I also need to be aware of my surroundings when to speak up to a physician to say, no, that's not right. I don't think that that's going to work for this patient or to just shut up and do my job. Um, I, I would say that when I first started doing this, um, it took me a little while, even though I feel like I have, I've always had the skills, but it took me a little while to develop the interpersonal skills with my physicians and the relationships to be able to say the things that I can say to them now, as long as I'm not stepping out of bounds. Right. And, um, you got to be gregarious. You got you got to be aware of your surroundings, and uh, you really always have to be. I'm a pretty happy person, um, probably even more so than most. And uh, I would say that you, you know you're going to get beat up. Um, being able to you know wear negatives and um, be in a space that sometimes is really negative. You know, medical assistants, um, scrub techs, sometimes they can get really really negative during cases, and it's our job to kind of keep everybody peppy and you know, in conversations that are productive and, and happy and fun. So being gregarious and, and uh, you know, knowing your surroundings and also um, being super happy in your role are some of the things that you just, you, you can't replace. Right. Especially like you mentioned earlier, these are people with chronic pain. And so mm-hmm. I imagine they just need a little bit of that lift and patience yeah. from people that are working with them too. Because I know I'm not the most pleasant to be around when I'm in pain. So, <laughs> you sure. know, that's minor to compared to living with it on a daily basis. And so I think that's really yeah. important to point out those skills of. And uh, that brings up another really good point, Kate, is that um, one of the things that is 100% inherent in what we do is empathy, right? Yeah. If you're not empathetic to a patient in their situation to be able to understand, um, you know, what they're trying to accomplish and be able to align yourself with, with what they're trying to accomplish, it's going to beat you up. Right. That's the only thing that really tends to get me down in my job is, you know, when a patient isn't doing well and I I have to kind of understand that I'm not going to be the end all cure all. And there's another thing, there's plenty of other things that Mm. work for each individual patient that I've got to try and understand to try and help them with their therapy. And, um, you know, empathy is at the core, right? Mm -hmm. Is trying to, you know, remain empathetic and not get short with patients that aren't doing well and that are calling you at all hours of the night. And, you know, they're just trying to (laughs) figure it out just like you are. Yeah. So being really empathetic is is a big part of what we do and really something you can't teach. Right. That's, that's tricky, you know, Mm -hmm. but it shines through on the people that do do it well. Yes. Ryan, what's your medical philosophy? Stay to the, <laughs> stay off the table and stay out of the, stay out of the office. Yeah. Take care of yourself and and uh, do everything that you possibly can. I mean, obviously, you know, we all need routine checkups. We all need blood work. We all have our colds. We all have you know our certain things that get us down. But um, trying to do everything in your power to stay off of this path of um, needing to be in the medical you know, under the medical care of somebody is really important. I think too many people, um, this is going to get a little philosophical here, but, um, the money lies in treating, right? Mm -hmm. 
Right. There is a ton of money from a hospital standpoint, from an ASC standpoint, from a physician standpoint. Like if, if all of us were to just seriously focus on taking care of ourselves, watching what we eat, exercising regularly, you know, doing the things that we enjoy. Um, yes, there is going to be a large portion of the patient population that drops off. There's still going to be a bunch of patients out there that you need to treat. But mm-hmm. trying to personally do everything that you possibly can to stay away and stay healthy is super, super important for my family and myself. Mm-hmm. I don't want to end up under somebody's care. If I do have to end up under somebody's care, I've got a, I've got an inside scoop on who I want to be, um, who I want to be with, yeah, aligned with here in town. And, uh, you know, that makes me feel really good if something were to happen to me or a family member of mine, which sometimes it does, um, that I were to be able to get them to the right person. But trying to stay out of the practice and doing things that are productive, you know, for your health um, is is really important to me. Awesome. I think, as you mentioned before, people are doing their homework. And so I think yeah. if if more encouragement went into the lifestyle part, you know, we would, we would avoid so much of it, but it is this money machine. Mm -hmm. So how do you bridge the gap between your perspective and philosophy and the medical industry as a whole? Um, clarify your question a little bit for me. I'm not sure I understand. I, I think, and it is a large question, but is it the particular branch of medicine that you're in that aligns with your philosophy being, like we said, it's not the first thing that patients reach to, but it's actually aligned with this is emergency level pain Mm -hmm. treatment. So is it, you found the pocket of medicine that you align with and agree with versus not agreeing with the industry as a whole? Yeah. Um, I, sure. I would say that the the industry as a whole and my own personal pocket has been very good to both myself and my family. And mm-hmm. um, I think that some of my statement on my own personal medical philosophy is in direct you know, <laughs> contradiction to what we treat, right? Yeah. Somebody that's at the end of the pain continuum and is in dire need of treatment is um, not where I want to end up. Right. And I think that if we were to pick it apart, it would take an entirely new podcast, yeah, <laughs> another probably even... hour, hour and a half. But I would say that a lot of my own personal um, feelings on medicine do not align at all with um, you know what I do for a living. Yeah. In fact, I would say that again, they're in kind of direct contradiction to, to what I do for a living. I mean, I'm treating a patient who um, most of our patients are morbidly obese. Most of our patients are, um, you know, in, in just really awful shape, um, have not done a lot of things to really truly help themselves during the course of their treatment and are just kind of a pinball and a pinball machine, you know, going from doctor to doctor to treatment to treatment to where really nothing is going to, to help them. And the patients that I see that do the best are the ones that are taking their treatment um, and just diving into it, right? Somebody that is going to change. One of the things that I say to patients occasionally when I'm like, if I feel really comfortable with a patient and when I'm doing an education with them, if they're really buying into what I have to say about our device, 
my line is that this is a multifactorial problem. Mm-hmm. Just because we give you a spinal cord stimulator, is, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to go out and run a marathon in two weeks. Right. Your continuum of pain is going to only get better if you start doing the things that this device will allow you to do because of less pain. If you come back to me in a year or two years or three years and you say my device isn't working and I take a look at your lifestyle and say, and this isn't my judgment call to make, of course, I would never actually say this to a patient long term. But if they come back and they're like, you know, Ryan, I'm getting, I was getting good relief, but I'm just still sitting on the couch and doing nothing. It's like, <laughs> you're not getting better. You're not, you're not empowering yourself to do better in your own therapy. So that's kind of where the contradiction comes from is being as, as a patient philosophically, you need to be able to do some things in your life, however much it sucks, to be able to put yourself in a different scenario if you are given the right tools. And a lot of patients aren't given the right tools. And I feel horribly that they weren't able to get the right tools in order to treat what they um, are suffering from. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them are and just don't do anything with it. So, you know, (laughs) I would say that, um, you know, where we are as a country and where we are with our, our, our medicine or medical philosophy right now is is brutal. There were there are just so many things that I would change about it. But again, I'm kind of a hypocrite in the fact that you know my my paycheck comes from a company who is doing, in my opinion, amazing things for patients. But it comes from an industry where, um, you know, I'm I'm one foot in and one foot out. I don't want to end up like the patients that I treat, and I'm doing everything I possibly can to keep myself out of that continuum. Mm-hmm. But yet I do it. Right. So it's tough. It's a limbo. My my wife and I have talked plenty about it. But I like that you, I guess you can highlight what you want to highlight, but I like hearing you say that this is a device that maybe reopens that window for them Mm -hmm. to make those changes to get back on track. So they've gone really, really far in one extreme. Here's your chance if you don't Mm -hmm. take this opportunity then I don't know what to do for you. Exactly. And, um, you know, per Medicare guidelines, which every insurance company has to go off of, mm-hmm. Medicare guidelines state that during a trial for a patient to move forward with the actual implant, they have to achieve a 50% reduction in their pain scores. So if a patient is at an 8, 9, 10 on a VAS score day to day and in, is just in extreme pain, and, you know, find themselves in a situation where they really can't do any of the things that make them happy. If I can provide 50, 60, 70, 80% pain relief for that patient and get them to the where consistently they're below a five, four, three, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. Again, if they sit on the couch and just do nothing and they don't, you know, enjoy the quality of their life and the quality of life increases that they're getting. I can guarantee you that they're going to be miserable in two years, even with a spinal cord stimulator. Mm -hmm. But if we can intervene and provide them the relief that I think um, they deserve and and can do really well with and use this as a springboard to kind of change some other things in their life, Mm -hmm. um, it can make a massive impact. And those are the patients that I see that do the best. The patients that get a spinal cord stimulator, get off the couch, start doing some things like pool therapy or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, going to the gym or, you know, just enjoying their family time more, getting out and walking once a day, 
you know, it's, yeah. it, it, it's not huge things that have to happen. It's small little tiny steps to get you back to where you want to be. Right. If someone was thinking about entering into your industry, what are some questions or information that you would present them with? Questions would be, um, how much do you want to get beat up? Yeah. <laughs> how much, uh, how well do you deal with um, negativity? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that one of the common misconceptions about the medical device industry and pharma um, are the hours. I work pretty awesome hours, but at the same time, you know, again, sometimes I'm working 12, 13, 14 hour days. It it, it can get really brutal. So you got to be ready for, um, for the big days. And, um, I would say that some of the resources that you have is take a look at, you know, just start doing some research online on what actual specific device industry you want to be in. There's hundreds of them. And there's little niches and offshoots of every single thing that you can possibly imagine. You can be a W-2 employee and get paid by the company and have to tow the company line in a much bigger way. Or you can own a distributorship and, you know, um, carry three or four different products in your bag and, and you know, go that route. But you're, mm-hmm. you know, there's benefits and drawbacks to both. Um, you know, start doing some research on what specific, um, you know, device industry you actually want to be in. And uh, start aligning yourself with it. It's a really, really hard um, industry to get into. Really hard. The barrier to entry to get into medical devices is, I mean, next to impossible. And it's because we recruit a specific type of people, I think. The people that um, are hungry, the people that want to work, the people that don't mind the negativity that comes along with what we do, that don't mind the hours, um, and can align themselves with specifically something that, you know, makes their life a little bit more enjoyable is great. But the misconception is, is that, um, you know, <laughs> we're, we're making boatloads of cash and that there's no restrictions on what we're able to do as a thing of the past. We talked about this a little, you know, bit, um, yeah. prior to us, you know, leading into this and, and, uh, medical device industry is just not what it once was. It's not glorified like it once was. The restrictions on what you can pay for for a physician are so tight that um, it's now come down to what device you service and what you, you know what you stand for personally as a rep, um, which it's a lot more merit based. Which I'm a much bigger fan of. You know yeah. the trips to Hawaii and the um, you know buying them a three hundred dollar putter after a you know glorious round of golf that has all completely gone up. We don't make nearly as much money as you think. And uh, the restrictions are extremely tight on us to be able to um, provide education to our physicians and be resourceful, but also not overstep that boundary. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't know if that quite answers your question. It does. (laughs) There's plenty. Yeah. Yeah. Good. But I think it is great to also touch on how things have changed and how people have, yeah. you know, the, the common perception is no longer the story of what it, what it is today. So mm-hmm. it's good to mention. Um, how has the pandemic affected your industry and your role right now? Um, it has affected our industry and, and specifically my role in a huge way. We have gone to Prior to the pandemic, if not if I'm not in my offices at least once or twice a week doing reprogrammings and reporting back to them on patients and trying to 
um, interact with the physicians and the practices that I work with to stay present, um, mm -hmm. I lose business, period. Yeah. If I'm not there, it's not like mailbox money. If I take a vacation and my partner you know, sits on his butt during his vacation or my vacation, we're not, yeah. we're just not selling anything. Right. Yeah. So, um, I, it's affected us in a big way because my interpersonal skills with all of my offices, if I don't go there in a week, they're like, Hey Ryan, where you, where you been? Mm -hmm. And we went, you know, three, four months without us being able to be in a lot of the practices that we're in. So, um, plus you take and you compound that by pretty much all elective surgeries were canceled for, you know, until further, further, further notice when this first hit. So our yeah. business went from, um, you know, I was probably in, in Q1 of this year, I was close to 110% to plan and or yeah. tracking for that. Yeah. And as soon as COVID hit, I was actually on a plane to Argentina. And um, unfortunately, you know, as pretty much as soon as I got back, um, everything had completely shut down. So wow. we went from um, the entire industry as a whole doing extremely well to we're not scheduling any surgeries for the you know, next indefinite future, right? Wow. So zero to 60, I mean, no possible um, income. Mm -hmm. Um, for the, and I think I can't remember what our market cap is for just neuromodulation in general for our for our company. But I mean, it's a staggering sum, right? What we're bringing to the uh, to the company to be able to generate revenue. If we're not able to sell batteries, um, you know, we go down yeah. to zero dollars. It's brutal, right? So right. there was a lot of question on how they were going to compensate us, what we were expected to do for the company, how we were expected to interact with our physicians. Everything was in limbo. And again, I mean, a testament to the company that I work for, they um, navigated this like you wouldn't freaking believe. It was just wow, awesome. Good. They treated us extremely well. They continued, you know, offering us paychecks that, uh, you know, again, we didn't deserve because we're not, you know, generally doing the work to deserve them and uh, just treated us with um, the utmost respect and took our families into account, everything. There's only been one or two things that, um, you know, kind of went by the wayside. And uh, honestly, it's, you know, a small drop in the bucket compared to how they treated us during during the pandemic. So um, it's it's affected us in a, in a major, major way. But it's also helped to, you know, the salespeople that are on the ground are the first people that are going to get your business back to healthy again. Yeah. So our ability to track our pipelines and make sure that our patients that, you know, were treated prior to this are still being treated and also get through to implant where we make our money, um, you know, they realize that we're in control of that. So if they treat us like, you know, poop, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not necessarily on the hook for, um, you know, really generating that income. And there were a couple of companies in my space that did not take care of their employees and their sales numbers show. We're right. almost a hundred percent back up to where we were pre-COVID, and we're still dealing with the fallout of everything that's going on. I don't think it's going right. anywhere until you know mid twenty twenty one. So, being able to navigate this is is uh, kind of an ongoing thing. I think companies have just shown loud and clear, you know, yeah. who they They're are and what they stand for. And yes, when you take care of your people, they'll show up for you and. That's, no question. You know, I'm glad to hear that was your experience. Yeah. And honestly, I would have had to have thought twice about my company had they not done that for us. I, I think that, you know, I told you a little earlier that I wouldn't work for any other company in the space. And 
that would have been even more magnified had they not, or, or I guess, treated me in the way that some of the other companies have treated their employees. Yeah. Um, I, you know, honestly, I, I love what I do, but I've got a little savings and I don't need to do it. So um, I would say that if, if you know, I, I don't know that I would have been with my company um, had they had they treated me in the way that, you know, some of the other companies treated their employees. So good. That's the brutal times. Beauty of financial freedom, though. Making yes. choices. Yeah. Fine, uh, final question for you. What is the best piece of career advice you have received or that you would offer to others? Hmm. Man, that's a oh, amazing question. Mm-hmm. I would say my best piece of advice for other people is to, um, I think a lot of people find themselves in positions where they don't like their current role. And one of the things that I have kind of grown to learn, and this isn't something that anybody in specific has told me, but as I grow older, one of the things that I've really started to notice in my life is that I don't like doing the things that I don't like doing. And I'm not going to pay attention to those things because I only have so much bandwidth in my life, you know, with the kids and the family and all the other stuff. If I don't enjoy something, I'm typically not going to do it. And so I think my biggest philosophy in this whole thing is that I enjoy what I do and it's really fun and I love treating patients. And so I continue to do it, but I'm also pretty passionate about it as well. And I have some other passions in my life, figure out what, you know, I've, I've tried to do this in my own, in my own personal life. I've tried to figure out what I'm really passionate about, what I'm really good at and try and find a role that suits me. Um, so that I don't find myself inherently unhappy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if I want to be doing this, I've got some other passions like playing golf or fly fishing or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Figure out something in that space that you can do and do well and that suits your personality so that you don't have to worry about going to work every day. I enjoy what I do. There are some days that are a total drag and I get, you know, <laughs> yeah. shot off of my high horse. But at the same time, like I keep coming back to it every day because it's something that I inherently like doing and I'm inherently good at. So yeah. if you can try and, you know, list out the things that you're really good at and your own personal traits and have some conversations with some people that are really close to you that maybe aren't your own, per- <laughs> that wouldn't tell your own personal bias about yourself and, uh, you know, figure out what you're really good at and try and do something that's closely aligned with that. Awesome. More good days than not. Yes. No question there. I love that. So good. Well, Ryan, thank you for your time today and giving us an honest look inside of your role and, you know, the medical device industry and some helpful things to think about for those that find themselves in transition and considering the industry. Kate, it's been a pleasure and you were a a, a fantastic interviewer. Thank you so much for, uh, for your time and I appreciate the opportunity. Big thank you to Ryan for being so open and honest and candid about your role as a medical device sales rep and for sharing just the ins and outs of what it actually takes and the reminder of, you know, when we are looking for a job where we're a good fit, it's not only enough to find what we're good at, but what do we enjoy and how can we find something that takes our personal philosophies in life and, you know, puts them into meaningful work. I hope this was a helpful episode for 
Anyone that is looking to make a career transition and has considered medical device sales, if you know anyone that is in that place, share the episode. It might be helpful as they make some big decisions. I hope you guys are doing well, and I will see you next time on another episode of Defining Roles.